Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Brooke Ellison, PhD. She's an associate professor of health policy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University. She has a PhD from Stony Brook University and a master's from Harvard Kennedy School. She is the author of two books, Look Both Ways, 2021, and Miracles Happen in 2002. At age 11, Brooke Ellison was hit by a car, an accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down and ventilator dependent. Ten years later, she graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University with a degree in cognitive neuroscience. At 23, she wrote Miracles Happen, a memoir that was adapted into a movie, The Brooke Ellison Story, directed by Christopher Reeve. Brooke went on to earn a master's degree in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and a PhD in sociology from Stony Brook University. Today, at 42, she is a tenured professor at Stony Brook. In her latest memoir comes sociological analysis, Look Both Ways, Brooke returns to the story of her remarkable life, centering herself in a broader conversation about personal struggle, public policy, and what it means to be human. She reflects upon 31 years as a woman with a ventilator-dependent quadriplegia. She writes frankly about her day-to-day frustrations, but also lyrically about her belief that people possess the strength and grit to fight back when we feel all is lost. I think you are going to love this conversation with Dr. Brooke Ellison. It is really compelling, and she is a phenomenal speaker and puts a lot of heart into everything she says and does. If you're a therapist looking for medical billing services that are ethical and provide excellent customer services, check out www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Its billing service is made by therapists for therapists. All right, let's get to the interview. Okay, welcoming to the Intentional Clinician Podcast, we have Dr. Brooke Ellison, PhD. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Brooke. Oh, no, thank you so much, Paul, for welcoming me to the show. Yes, and I am so excited to have you. I've been reading your book, the new one, Look Both Ways, and it is, wow, just so honest and and just intelligent and interesting, and I've been loving it. And uh, thank as I- you. Oh, you're welcome. And as I read earlier in the bio, you, of course, did write a book at 23 called Miracles Happen, which was then actually adapted into the movie, The Brooke Ellison Story, directed by Christopher Reeve. Um, so I, this is not your first book, but your, it's your second book, right? Is it the, That's the second right, one? my second book. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, there's so much to talk about. I guess just a little bit about you, even though I've read your bio, um, you're now uh, as a professor at uh, Stony Brook, and is that the right place? Did I say that right? That's right. You got okay. it. Yeah, okay, exactly. <laughs> and um, and we were just talking about how you give lectures uh, quite often to your students, and um, yeah, I guess I was just curious about what it was like for you writing this book because there's so much in here from all from your childhood all the way to these experiences you had, um, you know, almost getting chosen for this White House uh, position <laughs> um, and uh, running for Senate and all of these things you've done. I was just curious, how was it writing this book? 
<laughs> it was exhausting writing this book. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So, um, so thank you again, Paul, for for welcoming me to to talk about this. Yeah. So, as I'm sure you gathered from reading the book, this book means uh, a tremendous amount to me. Um, so, I had written, as you mentioned, my first book, Miracles Happen, when I was uh, just 23 years old. So, right out of college, um, 12 years post. 13 years, I guess, post uh, the injury that left me paralyzed from my neck down. And even though it was that much time following my my injury, I, I, I didn't have a full sense of what it meant to be disabled. Like I lived for so long with a disability, but uh, learning to be disabled, I think, is a very different um, understanding that one has to come to a self-awareness that I'm not sure that I had. So my first book, as important as it was to me at, um, at the time, I mean, even to this day, obviously, was um, a chronicling, really, of my life from the time of my accident in 1990 to when I graduated from Harvard um, in in 2000. And you know, a really important set of experiences and and struggles that my family had that I think was relevant to many people's lives. Uh, and after that time, I knew I wanted to write another book. Like, I love to write. Um, I have a, a love for words, as is probably evident in reading, you know, reading the book. Oh, yes. I could, I could definitely notice that. No, you're okay. I, I could definitely notice that you love words. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, so that's just like a part of who I am. And so I knew I wanted to write another book. And so I was kind of like dawdling on that for a while, thinking, well, you know, something will strike me for the, the, the right tone and the right thing to say at some point and dilly-dallying a bit. And you know, over the years, I was doing different things. I got my master's degree. I got my PhD. You know, I was running for office, as you mentioned. So my uh, attention was directed elsewhere. It was my 40th birthday for like for, I guess, six months preceding my 40th birthday. I was just not well, just not feeling well. Um, and I developed a severe pressure ulcer on my on the top of my left leg. Uh, and if you don't know much about pressure ulcers for people who live with quadriplegia or paralysis of any kind, these are really... Um, devastating conditions they become infected with all sorts of nefarious things and can often cause one one's life right it just becomes that that debilitating so for me i developed a pressure also that was about the size of a human fist so like five inch you know, five inches by four inches by three inches it went all the way to my bone and i was just very very sick um, you know with uh Pseudomonas, MRSA, all sorts of infections. And so this, the wound was treated. And that um, following summer, I said to myself, okay, you need to get crack in here. You need to, you know, you have some important things to share. You need to have some important experiences and lessons that you have learned and um, ideas that have been so much a part of who you are that you need to get these things down. So that summer, um, summer of 2019, actually, I just locked myself away in my bedroom and um, just wrote and wrote and wrote. And I didn't really at first have a sense of where I was going to go. I didn't know if it was going to be like a continuation of Miracles Happen, um, very kind of um, autobiographical in nature. And that's kind of how I started it. But then I said, wait a second, like that might not capture some of the really important things that I want to share with people like my um, uh, 
commitment to hope as a construct and what that means to me, uh, what it means to me, the, you know, the child or the person in the family who is disabled and you know, what it means to make that transition from life without disability to life with disability, what leadership means to me, uh, how I've under understood resilience, how I've um, integrated medical ethics into my professionalism and how that resonates with experiences that I've had over the years, right? So all of these things I said, you know, are really important to who I am. And if I really want to tell a full story about who I am, all of that needs to be in there. So yeah, so I just poured my heart out um, over the span of three months. I couldn't believe I got it done in three months, but I was you know, committed to doing that. And that's what I did. So it was exhausting, like I said, and there were many days when I was just like crying as I was writing, but you know, I forced myself to be very introspective and to think about things that I didn't really ever think about before. I didn't have the courage to think about before. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that that's, uh, sounds like quite an outpouring, and I can't believe you actually wrote this. I do believe it, but I also <laughs> like, it's quite a book, uh, you know. Thank and, you. And you talk about, and so you talk about the disability, and you mentioned that, and the resiliency and everything you've been through, that you've gone through because of the accident. Um, but it's interesting because when I read the book, and what you say in the book is you didn't want this just to be a book about disability, and it's not. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just that you talked about how the it's, it's humanity touched by disability, like mm -hmm. a person that's been, been, you know, affected by disability. And that gives you a unique lens. And you talked about Emily uh, Durkheim, mm -hmm. who yeah. envisioned society that all social experiences and entities can be thought of in terms of the functions they play in overall social structure, the structural functionalist model and how disability and the role it plays in social life in the U.S. beyond. Um, but you were talking just about all these different things that people deal with when, they're when they have a disability, which is praise and ridicule, a revered and repelled, and these like different things you've had to navigate. And, and, and also, just interestingly, in the book, you happen to just do so many things in your life that even a person without any disability, you know, not, not ever gets around to this, you know, like writing books yeah. and becoming a professor and lecturer and, and doing the political, all the political things you've done and the public speaking, you know, you've, you haven't, the disability has colored your life, but you've been doing all of these things. So the book is about so much more, but yet you've got that unique lens of actually being able to speak about it. And in a way that is, you know, helps other people understand and and think about how our society should function or how we could have it function you know mm -hmm. that's kind of inclusivity that i was i was reading about so thank I was, you yeah you're <laughs> welcome i was just curious about your comments just about that idea that, yeah. yeah no exactly so yeah so that little bit at the beginning like i didn't even realize that you know, where i was going with that when i started writing but it's kind of like yeah tell me you're a sociologist without telling me you're a sociologist <laughs> bit there right so like that's in there and i and um, so I am, I got my PhD in sociology. So there's a lot of that sociological frame to the book, right? I, 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 I speak very personally as much as I possibly could from a deeply personal standpoint, but didn't want it to be all you know, anecdotal, you know, all from my own 
vantage point, so I put some structure around it with some talking about society and society's role in understanding disability and how people with disabilities have played this kind of, you know, functionalist role in society, right? There's actually like a concept called, um, you know, the, the disability crutch, right, that's used, or the narrative crutch that's used in, in movies, right? So you have the people with the person with a disability, um, you know, in the in a film, right, that it, it plays some kind of inspirational role or some kind of person to be pitied, right? So rather than actually understanding a person as a human being, it almost plays this narrative crutch. We see it, you know, in films all over and, and stories all throughout uh, history and whether or not the, the person who has created that character has any idea of what disability is, is actually like. And I think that, you know, just to a certain extent, I understand that. I understand the um, the viewing of people with disabilities in those those lights, you know, in those kinds of descriptors that I talk about in the book as you know, somebody who's either the inspiration or is the person to be pitied, right? The person to be revered or the person to be you know, repelled against, right? These kind of really um, visceral reactions that we have to disability um, without really understanding how valuable disability actually is. And this is not something that I ever understood before my accident either, right? So I was only 11 years old at the time of my accident. So just, I guess, in, in fairness to myself, maybe I didn't have enough t- enough years under my belt to um, have known somebody with a disability or to understand it any better than I did. But, um, you know, for um, all my life until my accident and then for years after, um, I kind of understood disability to be that which we pity, right? The, um, the part of the human experience that makes us weaker, right? That are the, the people who can and probably should be marginalized within the world, right? Not um, not included in any way, you know, the ones who um, are, you know, almost like the forsaken ones. And, and I remember after my accident thinking yeah, that was basically what I should expect for my life. I, and for a long time, because of that, I did not want to be associated with my disability at all. I mm-hmm. thought like, this is just a part of who I am that I do not want to think about that's going to make me a weaker or a lesser person. And that's not what I wanted for my life. So I had to try to reject this part of my identity that was you know, so much a part of who I was. And you know, it wasn't until years after that I said, wait a second, in my very discussion of my disability, I had to talk about strength. But I had to also talk about the resilience that I needed to rely upon every single day to get through the world, get to, uh, to navigate a world that was not set up for me. You know, I needed to talk about um hopefulness and what that means to me and how I view that as a very action-oriented term and you know, so much a part of who I am. I needed to talk about you know, leadership and I needed to talk about um, you know, just being able to live the world on my own, you know, in my own way and the kinds of creativity I needed to adopt in order to do that. And these are all really virtues, right? These are all strengths that I think the world needs much more of. And like that is the um, the virtue of disability, right? The real epistemology that one develops by virtue of living with a disability, not all the things that I think we typically understand about disability. So that's kind of what I mean when I talk about, when I mention look both ways, right? Like, of course, 
I knew that I was writing a very heavy-hitting book and a very um, uh, powerful book, and I wanted the title of the book to be equally as heavy-hitting, right? A kind of, you know, no-nonsense title, right? I was hit by a car, and, you know, look both ways. It's almost like a tongue-in-cheek about, you know, what I did not do um, in preceding my accident immediately at the time of my accident. But at the same time, it's also how we need to understand our lives. We can't fully appreciate all of what our lives entail without understand, without seeing all parts of it. And that includes all the strengths that come out of not just disability, but disability as a manifestation of all the challenges that humanity experiences, right? I think when we experience challenge, we think that it is isolating. We think that it is marginalizing. We think that we are completely alone in the kinds of struggles that we face. But in reality, it's challenges that really unify us, bring us all together. And like I think that's a really important understanding for us to have. And disability is just one very obvious representation of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think you said you said a lot of really compelling things here and, and how you were able to be able to to have the strength to live with a disability. You had to examine so many things in your own personal life, but also in society. And then also, mm-hmm. you know, just using that as an example of of something that can, you know, like you said, can enlighten us or bring us together and looking at both the difficulties, like you said, look both ways. It was the euphemism, but also I was reading it's like the sadness, but also the positive lens to view the world like, mm-hmm. hey, here's how we can make a better world. Right. I can see it exactly. now from my vantage point. And I think that was in the middle of the book. I was reading that. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Actually, that chapter, that you know, both ways, chapter, chapter five, is intentionally the uh, kind of pivot chapter, the, the transformative chapter where I go from talking about some of the, the more personal struggles that I experience, whether it is having to reinterpret the role that I play within my family or how I... Um, my uh, experience with disability, I thought, affected my family in possibly one way, when it really may have affected it in an entirely different way, and how I, it took years after my accident to even force myself to think about that. Like, that was a really, that was probably the hardest chapter to write, was chapter three, where I was talking about my family, or talking about how disability has, has forced people to treat me in a very dismissive or infantilized way. Right? So all of those things take place before chapter five. And then I have this this chapter where I deliberately look in the other direction. So the rest of the book um, is more focused on the virtues that have come out of the experiences that I've undergone and how I've chosen to not let the limitations that not only has the the physicality of my disability um, put on my life, but the social constraints that disability has put on my life, um, have not let those affect me uh, in any way. And the kinds of things I've done, irrespective of those, or possibly even because of those. Yes, absolutely. I definitely was getting that. And I think that is a a very important point for people that are interested in in reading the book, because I think you you hit both sides of it, the personal and kind of the universal. So I really think that I I think that people who like I've known some about disabilities just because I've had people in my family that had 
profound disabilities, but I haven't known anybody who had been quadra had a quadriplegic disability. I had mm-hmm. not known about much about that. Right. Um, not that many of us. Yeah. And so like I think to me it was very eye-opening, but also just so in, you know interesting about how you were able to view the world and adapt um from that viewpoint. And it was actually the writing was very, I don't know if you meant to do this, but I can like picture like some books you can picture what's going on and some books you can't. I could picture what was going on in your oh, book. Very, thank you. Very viscerally, which was good. I, I just was like, wow, this is definitely a movie in my brain. Um, <laughs> thank and you. I, so you're welcome. Yeah, I, I did. I very much enjoyed it. And I, I wanted to talk about now that we're talking about you said you deliberately look both ways. I actually wondered about maybe deliberately talking about some of the negative stuff and then talking about some of the positive stuff in the sure. interview. Are you open to that? Absolutely. Because some of the, the negative stuff I wanted to touch on, uh, there's a couple things. Two things that kind of came up, well, three things. You kind of already mentioned infantilization, but two or three of the things I was thinking about, and you can go with any of these, was the technology is great, but it only brings us so far. You talk about that. And you talk yeah. about the billions of dollars in uncompensated care per year that family members, and then the fact that your parents had to fight for basic medical supplies and like yeah, they were trying day. to exclude you from school and all this ridiculous thing. So I guess there's three things in there. One is like the technology, because clearly like technology has helped you be able to function and, and be able to thrive in, in ways that you wouldn't have been able to before the technology existed. So that's a maybe a negative and a positive, but then the family stuff and, and the insurance companies, those things really got to me. So mm-hmm. any of the, would, would any of those you want to tackle? Those are the kind of the negative side of it. Sure. sure. Yes. No, so, um, yeah. So, um, like, I guess I could I start with the first one, the technology, right? So, um, yeah. I'm very much of the mind that, and, and possibly to, um, a, a ridiculous degree that, that anytime I experience challenge, I view it as both a, a source of struggle, a source of pain, but also an opportunity to do something about something that needs to be fixed, right? So kind of this opportunity statement view of challenge um, and technology is no different. So just recently, in addition to my full-time pers- for, um professorhood, professorship at, at Stony Brook. I'm also um, the vice president of technology and, in, and innovation for a national nonprofit organization, United Spinal, United Spinal Association. And what I do in this position is uh, liaise with members of big tech and startup companies and engineering, you know, schools of engineering and applied sciences. And then also on the other side, uh, people with spinal cord injuries and wheelchair users, generally speaking, about the challenges that they face and bringing these two entities together to talk about how technology can be a mechanism to bridge some of the true um, human rights divides that people with disabilities experience, whether it's their access to education right? Uh, Access to employment. We all know that um, people with disabilities experience a tremendously high uh, or disproportionately high level of of unemployment for a tremendous number of sociological reasons, right? Not just their inability to get to the the workplace, but many um, social structures or social um, obstacles that impede their ability to get a job. 
access to medicine, you know, healthcare, access to community participation, right? All of these things can be addressed by technology that either is or is not innovated, right? So um, we live in a world where technology is increasingly a part of our daily lives. Much of that is inaccessible to people with disabilities, whether for the uh, cost factor or because it's just not designed for their needs or not designed um, in the way that's best suited for their needs, or even innovating entirely new technology that would be more usable for them or to actually get it to um, provide a solution to a challenge that they may be experiencing, right? So I've, I've taken this question as head on as I possibly could because technology, you can't, you can't sufficiently talk about technology without talking about disability and vice versa. But for a very long time, that was not the case for me. So um, throughout school, throughout you know, junior high school and high school, you know, I was trying to do things as piecemeal or as Rube Goldberg as I possibly could. I remember you know, using a book stand, just like a regular music stand to hold my textbooks and having somebody come and turn the page every time I needed to turn the page. It would, everything would take so much longer. Um, at the same time, where I am right now in my life is very much the product of the technology that I was able to integrate into it. So now I'm trying to create for whoever is going to follow in my in my wake um, a world that's much more accessible to them, um, that provides them the equal opportunity to compete and use their talents. Right, that they have the um, the you know the world open to them, and the world can see how tremendously brilliant and talented people with disabilities are and how they can contribute to um, to a functioning society, right? I, I think that these are virtues that are just not often um, included in, in our conversation, actually so much so that one of the courses that I teach at, at Stony Brook is a course called Inclusion and Innovation. And I teach future engineering story, future engineers or engineering students about how to in integrate um, uh, disability inclusion in their future work. And one of the technologies that, that the students were working on was a um, a device that will allow people with quadriplegia to to take part in art, right? To allow them to, you know, to, you know, to, to paint or to, you know, to um, manipulate art on, on the computer. And I said, you know, this is so valuable because art is a representation of how people see the world. And Art has historically been missing the disabled vantage point, right? People with disabilities view the world in a very particular way, and everybody is being um, denied an opportunity to see how people with disabilities really understand and view the world differently. Um, so I think that you know, technology is no different from that. So that's a little bit about kind of my experience in the technology, why I think it's so important. So it, the inaccessibility the technology has often had, I'm trying to address it as pro pro proactive a way as I possibly can. Yes, I think that's a, a very great summary on both ends of it. I think uh, it's very important to, for, I mean, like the art thing, I, I had not thought of that. That is, I mean, mm -hmm. obviously that is amazing. And it's also good for your mental health to be able to express exactly. yourself via art and how mm -hmm. much could be created. And I think, I think what you're nailing here is, is something that's come up multiple times in the book. And in my mind is that there's this sort of uh, 
assumption people without a disability might accidentally make onto and putting it onto a person with a disability. They might just assume something because, you know, because you're relying on, you know, wheelchair or technology or something to help you that you don't have things to contribute to society or to art or to whatever. And I think that is the real, that is the real annoyance and could be travesty or, you know, depending not, I mean, in your case, obviously you fought to be able to have a voice and to be able to use it. Mm -hmm. And there's, but there's so many people out there with disabilities right now that, um, have no platform and are sort of like treated like children, you know, and I think, I think that's, that is, you know, I'll tell a little personal, I was, I was going to just, I I guess I'll bring this in before I ask you the next question, but I have a, I had an uncle who was also hit by a car. Oh wow! Um, He did not have, he did not have quadriplegia, but he almost died multiple times. And he, he he could really not walk without he couldn't really walk. I'll put it that way. He kind of had to use a wheelchair for most things, but he could kind of hobble kind of mm-hmm. like one of his okay, legs sure. kind of worked, you know, mm-hmm. so he didn't have the spine, but he, he had a curved spine. He couldn't, mm-hmm. so he could move around with great difficulty, take him hours to go anywhere. Right. And mm-hmm. he had to sure. kind of be assisted. And, you know, it was funny because, and he, but he, and he, uh, and he had problems talking, Oh, you know, talking and, and, and everything was affected. Basically he could barely yeah. live on his own, uh, only a little bit. Sure. He could live with some assistance. And, and I thought about, you know, when you're re- I was reading your book and about how, how much you've overcome and how you're like inspiring people, like literally with your books and your movies Thank and your you. lectures and everything. And that's phenomenal. But, but I remember thinking about him and I thought about when you talk about people infantilizing you because you couldn't move without the assistance of technology. And I thought about him too, like people infantilized him just because he had to have a wheelchair to get on the bus and mm-hmm. move around with, you know, a double cane and a walker and, you know, all these things. But then I thought about, you know, you know, in his, in his personality, which is different, you know, than yours, but he, he was the one everyone wanted to talk to because he had been through so much terrible crap that he ended mm-hmm. up being the most mature uncle and or aunt that I've had pretty mm-hmm. much in my life. He give you the best advice. You know, <laughs> it took him a longer time to talk as he he'd stutter in over his mm-hmm. words, but he mm-hmm. gave you the best advice. He would always listen. He never said he didn't have time for you. Um and I thought about that how many how you know, people would assume, oh, he just needs help or something. And it's like, no, he's helping you, you know, just by talking to you, just because he can't pick up your groceries or help you with physical labor doesn't mean that he's not helpful. Right. So I thought about that and I was kind of comparing him in my mind to you because the only other person I've known that has been very severely and unable to move without assistance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought about, you know, Yeah, you're welcome. And I just, I feel like that is the thing is that as a society, technology is great to help people be able to move and do things they need to be able to do despite their limitations. But um, I think that as a society, we need to be listening to people who have had disabilities because they have a different perspective, like you said, but also, I don't know, I, I feel like it does something to you as a person or can and not not that this is a stereotype, but it can really mm-hmm. open you up to the pain of other people and to be able to understand them. Um, mm-hmm. That's an, a theory I had. 
I, I couldn't agree. We're struggling with you, Paul. And thank you so much for your candor and your willing to, willingness to open up and, and, and share that because you're exactly, exactly right. Um, our inclination is to dismiss somebody with a disability, right? We, we um, typically use our standards of beauty and physicality, right? We have a society that's so much built on um, virility and physical beauty uh, meeting some kind of idealized standard, right? This is just how we've structured our society and, and people with disabilities as a result of that have been you know, the lowest on the totem pole because they, they are the ones who are, who are um, most uh often not meeting those ideals we're coming farthest uh to meeting those ideals so they're ranked lowest on um the societal totem pole even so much so as during the, the pandemic right there are many people with disabilities who were um the first to not receive care when care was being triaged right their lie the worth the relative worth of their lives was being um reduced or thought to be not um not as worthy as as others and that was you know, extremely detrimental but very reflective of how we value the lives of people with disabilities and you think that they are your children are infantilized or not um you're just not worth the investment that we make in, in other people when i think that that is such an unfortunate way of of looking at the situation for the very reason that you mentioned right your your uncle the, I would I would venture to guess purely because of the circumstances he encountered and the kinds of understandings that he um, had to incorporate into his life viewed the world very differently. Um, and I, I, I talk about this in the book that yeah, you know, my life is is limited in terms of breadth of experience, but each experience is so much deeper. Right, I don't have some of the um, typical relationships that people have uh, in their lives. Right, some of the um, the rites of passages that people experience, but the the, um, the relationships that I do have are profoundly important. Right, are just so so deeply important to who I am. Right, I I might tire more easily, but I invest so much in every moment that I am, you know, awake and doing the work that I do. Yeah, I could spend hours in front of the computer doing the kinds of things that I need to do in order to get get my work done because you have to live life differently. And it is a valuable, valuable life, a really important way to live, you know, to live your life. So just uh, last week, uh, it was a particularly warm day here in, in New York, and I went with my nephews um, to the beach. And I talk about the beach now. I take my nephews to the beach Um yeah, in the in the book, and yes, you know, so my oldest nephew is seven years old, and he was playing on on this on the, the playground, the swing set, and you know, I couldn't get over to where he was because um, it was you know, covered in sand. So he came running over, and his friend um, came running behind him, and he said, "Oh, Carter, you're not leaving, are you?" And he said, "No, I just needed, I just wanted to say hello to my brookie. She can't get over here to the sand, and you know, he just like he understands." the value that I've played in his life and the role that I've played in his life because it's so different than any other relationship that he has. And you know, I, th I think that there's something really valuable um, 
to be found there. And even the relationship relationships are different or the kinds of ways you interact with somebody with a disability is different. There's something really valuable to be found there. And unless you take the time to know that, um, you will never know it. And I think that is to not only to the detriment of the person who lives with a disability, but to, you know, to the other person as well. Oh, yes, I agree. Yeah, this is a very uh, great way to summarize that. I agree. Uh, the other, I think you're right, the other people, it's a detriment to them too, not to open up and to grow mm-hmm. past whatever strange, you know, there's also like, I think this is just a theory. I think people without a major disability might be scared of somebody of who has a disability because they think, what if that, I, I don't know how to cope with that. And should I just give them pity or should I, what if I had that disability? You know, you start thinking about all those things. And I think it takes bravery for the person who is, having the disability to put up with all that. But I also think it takes bravery of the person who's unintroduced to say, yeah, what about just treating them like a regular person and seeing what their limitations are, asking them, you know, what are your boundaries, right? Versus just assuming that you have all these boundaries. Because as far as I can tell, I mean, while it takes you longer, you go travel you know, you go places, you do things, you make mm-hmm. speeches, you know, you, you you talk about what I mean by taking longer is it just takes you longer than a person who is able to walk around and mm-hmm. and you deal with that. And and exactly. I think, you know, um, as a person who, you know, who can walk or walk around, it's like, let's give that person the humanity that they deserve instead of kind of categorizing them. Right. And I think that's something that comes through in the book. Yeah, you're welcome. I know. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, you you can't fault people necessarily, right? You can fault them to a certain extent, but we we don't live in a society that teaches people what what, the virtue of disability or really disability in any way, shape, or form. I know that that was not a lesson that I ever had growing up as a child. I didn't didn't really have that level of exposure. And because we don't live in a society where there are people with disabilities who are more visible in different societal roles there's no role model to look up to right to say okay this there you know we can have a ceo or a person you know a, um, a legislator who has a disability and that is just fine that's to be expected right we were, were taught the opposite right these people you belong in you know in nursing homes or health or medical institutions or um kind of removed from society, living in their homes and not going anywhere, right? That's kind of the how we uh, disability is often portrayed, right? The people to be shunned, the people to be um, embarrassed about. And unless we do a better job in putting people with disabilities in all of these different you know, positions of power or um, positions of influence, or even just welcoming them to like the decision-making table, that's going to be, I think, an unfortunate um, stereotype associated with disability for far longer than it ought to be. Yes, I definitely agree. Um, I want to make sure I want to hit on one more negative thing before mm-hmm. we start talking about some positive. Things. Sure, no, <laughs> <laughs> which which is uh, um, you were talking about in the United States that the the care for people of those like family members who have someone in their family who's disabled mm-hmm. in certain countries and in most industrial countries, that person is able to be compensated for their work. Mm-hmm. But in the U S it's very difficult 
to be able to be compensated as a family member to help your fellow family member who may be needing extra help. Right. And in fact, you said, and you know, this a statistic was billions of dollars in uncompensated care each year in the United States. Right. Hundreds people, of billions. Hundreds yeah. of billions. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Of people yeah. caring for people with disabilities and in other industrial nations, this is not necessarily the case. It's a lot easier to get a position doing that. So I, I don't know. Right. You talked about the caregiver action network and the national Alliance of caregiving for caregiving and ever care. But can you just maybe comment on what's going on with that? Sure. sure. So there, there has been movement um, at the certain state levels uh, at, the, um, at the state level to try to um, compensate family caregivers for the care that they give to their family members. But by and large, just as I had written in the book, um, a tremendous amount of care for people like me or for um, for parents, you know, elderly parents who may need uh, additional care or for your children um, who have no other ability but to um, rely on their parents for, for care, the care that is, is given through um, through family members, often through mothers who, in my case, like my mother day of my accident was also my mother's first day as a special education teacher. It was also her last day. She had to leave her her job, um, a job that she worked very hard to get. She had gone that when I was a child. She went to, um, to school after we had come old enough. My sister, my brother, and I became old enough to kind of fend for ourselves a little bit more um, independently. She went back to school to get her, her teaching license and then her degree in special education. So she had started her, her career, but then had to leave that, um, putting you know, my family in kind of some financially difficult waters for a while in order to care for me because getting um, reliable, skilled care for somebody like me is is extremely difficult to do right there's just a there's a and right now given the nursing shortage is is even is even worse um there is a tremendous shortage of home care providers in general the reimbursement rate is abysmally low for home care providers and then there's no um legislation that that has been enacted at the federal level to allow family members who are providing this care to get reimbursed or compensated really in any way. So they do this on an uncompensated basis, you know, costing or saving you know, our country you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. And you know, that's just fundamentally unfair. It's just, it's just not right. So we need to have much more work being done in this area. Actually, there was just some movement um, at the federal level by um, the Biden administration to look at the caregiver problem and how we need to address this, you know, from a proactive policy standpoint, because you know, people's um, lives are at risk as a result, you know, nothing short of that. And that's how many people who live in situations like my own end up in medical institutions, right? That becomes the almost the uh, expected uh, outcome for their lives and that is completely unacceptable right that somebody because they've had injury ends up living in some kind of um you know really potentially catastrophic um medical institution right we saw during the pandemic how um challenging these institutions are in people's lives you know there's a, there's a lack of um of care that's provided there right not enough um not enough people to 
take on the caseload so much so that you know there's the spread of infection and disease and um, they become weakened as a result and things like pandemics can become um, you know, just devastating to that population as a result. So there's just many different social outcomes that are um, should be thought of as completely unacceptable, but because they're um, uh, focused on, on a population that doesn't really garner too much respect, you know, we deal with it, we tolerate it. And you know, that's not something that I want to see in the world. So I, I continue to advocate for all of cha- all you know, changes in all of these different policy areas because they can be they can be changed if we just have a voice at the table and um take action on them. That's a good uh a very good point. I mean um yeah I have no summary except to say that that, <laughs> I, that can move us towards maybe action or maybe some of the positive things. Exactly. Bringing awareness to it, which is what you're doing with this book. And, you know, that's why we're publishing the pop podcast. Um, now, there are some interesting psychological things you were talking about in the book. I believe if I can find it. Um, I think this was You were talking about David Foster Wallace. And right. you were talking about the difference between what we want and what we need, uh, human needs, not special needs. And 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 I was just curious if you were maybe some of the things you learned about this. I mean, there's a lot of philosophy you quote in here, but some of the things you learned between you know wants and needs. I thought that was maybe something that was universally. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, that was the very first part of the book that I wrote. I actually wrote that uh, as an independent essay, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do about it. So this, I, I, that's in the happens at the end of chapter four, where I was talking about um, infantilization and kind of the marginalization that people with disabilities often face. And um, yeah, I wrote I um, wrote this essay at a time of kind of like some emotional weakness, right? I was um, feeling sad about things I wanted to do, things I wanted to, I was, I felt that life was denying me the opportunity to do, um, whether that was going on a vacation or um, availing myself of the kinds of relationships that many people find as critical in their lives. So all these things were kind of flooding my head in terms of like, how could I go on with my life without being able to do these kinds of things? So I just, I forced myself to be very um, particular about what I was feeling and what I was thinking about. So yeah, so I have this kind of wants and needs section to to culminate um, chapter four. I used, I just stuck it in there because I thought it's just a a valuable place to have it go. There's something that I want people to know about me, right? That's kind of how I, that's the nexus that I draw between how people typically or or could conceivably treat me as, you know, almost like somebody who doesn't have much value in the world to somebody who is very much human, who has the very same human wants and needs as everybody else. And the kinds of needs that I experience are pretty, pretty significant. Right, uh, the things that I need to get through the day are significant, but they're very much at this point circumscribed to 
my just my daily getting through the the day, right? The kinds of physical needs that I have, right? Medical needs that I have. Like I and I think up before my accident, I would have never been able to conceive of my life without having um, the ability to do the things that I had done when I was a child, right? So you don't need to be able to even breathe or walk down the street in order to live a meaningful life. You don't need to be able to go on vacation to live a very meaningful and you know powerful life. You don't need to be fully independent to um you know, to to live a life that is of value. And I think I would never have understood that as a child. I probably would never have understood it even as an adult. You know that I think that we um ascribe certain needs to who we are into our lives because we think that those are the things that make our give our lives value when they don't necessarily right i still have the same wants i still would love to do those things yes i'm not i'm not uh ignorant as far as that's concerned right these things would make my life um you know richer but at the same time there are other things that i can do that make my life my life equally as rich so, you know, so I teach a course on medical ethics, and you know, we talk a lot about kind of um, the uh, the lives that people with disabilities experience, or some of the um, the circumstances that bring about disability, and how people have have decided to end their lives, right? The kind of physician aid and dying, or physician assisted suicide, as it's kind of more um, often described, right? So how people decide to end their lives because of some kind of devastating disease or disability that they might encounter. Um, so whenever we have this, this lecture, I ask my students, well, what would constitute a life not worth living for you? And they often talk about things like, oh, if I wasn't able to, um, to, you know, to play soccer, if I wasn't able to, um, you know, to, to live independently, or if I was living on a uh, uh, was you know, attached to tubes or attached to machines, or if I, if I was a burden to my family, right? So all of these things that I think people typically view as completely devastating to their lives, or would be um, kind of, uh, I guess, game changers in terms of whether or not they would want to continue to live their lives. Um, and then you, but throughout the course of the semester, they see things a little bit differently. That wait a second, you actually can do things that are meaningful and important and live life in a valuable way without those without those things. It doesn't mean that you don't um, you have the same desires that other people have, and you can do things that are quite meaningful and quite powerful. Um, and I think that we see these social representations of life otherwise. Very frequently, right? So you could think of uh, movies like *A Million Dollar Baby*, where it was the um, the the logical outcome and the logical decision that after experiencing a um, a paralyzing injury, that you know the protagonist of the movie would you know, would choose to end her life for like uh, *Me Before You*, right? Another movie that 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 portrays the very same. Um, idea. And I think that is just catastrophically unfair. I think it portrays a very uh, unfortunate vision of what it's like to live with a disability and without understanding the humanity behind it, right? That I, you know, I, from my own vantage point, somebody who would desperately want to do all of these things, these things that give people's um, lives 
richness and color, but we create a world that doesn't allow us to do these kinds of things. Um, but at the same time, you can live a life that's meaningful and powerful and and worth it without those things. That is uh, very, I'm very glad you're talking about that. Um, I think it's important because I think what you're teaching them is so many things. But one of the things I'm getting is empathy in the sense that you're able not to have pity, but empathy, which is I want to be able to learn how you view the world and I want to be able to feel how you feel and I want to be able to see things through your lens. Mm -hmm. And I think if you can do that, it's a very amazing exercise for young people. It's for anybody, really. I think we could use more of it in the world. But Thank um, you. And not assuming that that lens is a, a lesser lens, right? I think we have, we assume um, that to be the case, right? That um, somebody who's not living in a situation that we are familiar with or accustomed to is by is almost by definition living some kind of inferior version of what we understand humanity to be. And I think that's an unfair assumption to make. It's just a, yes, exactly. It's just a different lens and it's an <laughs> altered lens and it has, it, it, and so I think it, it, you have to overcome all the psychological difficulties that you've talked about in the book to be able to make meaning and not dwell in the, in some of the more negative aspects of what, what's going on. And, and you right. have made great meaning and that takes a lot of inner mental strength and, and, Thank and you. spiritual strength, so to speak. Thank so I think you. Yeah. You're welcome. And I think that should be an inspiration because I think a lot of people, you know, commit suicide every year because they say, mm -hmm. I can't live with this thing that happened to me or my family or somebody in my life. And I think that's so tragic because, um, like you talked about in the movies, but I, I feel like that's so tragic because you're right. Right now, it is feeling like you can't live through that thing. Mm -hmm. It is yeah. feeling the feelings and the emotions that are attached to something bad or devastating that happens to you or your family what will make you feel like a part of you is dying. And in fact, a part of you probably is dying. Exactly right. Yeah. But, I, I don't but, want to minimize that at no. all. But, but, the, but the idea that suicide is some sort of solution when things don't go your right is something I think that we've, we've got to keep continuing to, um, to downplay and say, no, there is value in life at any, um, and any with, with any disability or any restraint or even after trauma or, or mm -hmm. something that happens. And I think you're a testament to all that because I do see the, the car accident is extremely traumatic. And you talk about in the book for you and especially, um, cause you were, you know, unconscious for days for your family while you were mm -hmm. unconscious and everything right. they went through too. And then, you know, the disability and learning to live with that and, and how all of that uh, affected you is traumatic, is traumatic. And I think that you've chosen, and I think I'm using the word chosen because I don't think it was easy. I don't think you just like, you know, we're like, okay, this is easy. Let's just do this. I no, think you chose to that. make your life meaningful and you chose to inspire others and engage in the Thank conversation. You. And so that is a huge inspiration for people wherever they are, even if they don't have any sort of notable physical disability, if you have a mental disability, right, or a mental illness, that mm -hmm. that your voice is not valuable, it's not true. It is valuable. It's just that, right. you know, you're struggling with things that others may not be struggling with. And so in your case, I think as a mental health person, I was thinking, my goodness, not only are you every day physically having to, you know, navigate, and now maybe as you're older, it might be easier for you because you're used to it or something, but I don't 
don't see it as easy. I just I don't know. It doesn't look easy to me. I'm not sure. Right. But no, I feel no, no, exactly. It, it isn't. You're exactly right. Um, and I, and I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Thank you. One of the I think um, the important understandings that I had come to that I was very was um, critical to making that transition from kind of the difficulty in life to forging ahead was to to not to be able to to um, separate my disability from the trauma that presented the disability here, right? Like I think very often when we experience some kind of life altering or traumatic experience, we um, we can't understand our lives outside of the trauma that created whatever circumstances we find us out ourselves in, right? So it took me a very long time for me to be able to understand my disability separate from the accident and the trauma associated with the accident that created the disability right so these are i needed to understand these things as separate right so i I could i could only for a very long time could only like curse my disability and like understand and be terrified of it because i i associated it almost uh, entirely almost synonymously with the accident that devastated my life that caused so much pain and injury and changed things so dramatically um i needed to be able to shift that i needed to not be afraid of my disability because i i, I was so upset about thinking about my accident so that that you know, making that that transition and understanding these two things as fundamentally separate i think was really an important thing for me and then that allowed me to move ahead with my life saying, okay, you know, this was a traumatic instance, but my life thereafter is not just a continuation of that trauma, right? My life, um, my accident was tragic, but my life is not a tragedy. My accident was traumatic, but my life is not a continual uh, instance of trauma and I can do what I want with it and, and make it, um, what I want to make of it, you know, as long as I have the supports around me to do it. And you know, that was a really important transition for me to make to say, okay, I can, I can do these two things as separate that required a lot of um, rewriting of a personal narrative, right. In terms that were um, not frightening to me uh, up until you know, the time I went away to college, you know, I didn't ever talk about my accident because it was so devastating to me. You know, it was mm. so terrifying. I just like, if, if anybody were to ask me about my accident, it was just something that wasn't done. It was almost like, you know, don't talk about this because mm. it's the un, the unspoken thing. And I think that was uh, probably detrimental to me because it didn't allow me to process and almost like, you know, reconstruct and reorganize a devastating experience in ways that were in, in terms that I could handle and manage. It wasn't until I got to college where I was forced to talk about my accident in a way that didn't you know, make me break down into tears. But, uh, you know, that I'm going to talk about the things that I had to actually, you know, on a, um, a similar scale integrate into my life, all these strengths and virtues, the things that we were talking about before, like that is actually who I am. I'm not the definition, I'm not just the embodiment of tragedy, I'm the embodiment of the strengths that require required to get to overcome the trauma that created the disability in and of itself. And those two things sit side by side. You cannot separate the two. Like those are the things that are inseparable, not trauma and disability. It's you know trauma and resilience. You can't really have one without the other and then move forward with your life. Wow. Yes, that's inspirational. And I think that, you know, 
um, one of my big things I work on as a therapist and as a supervisor is people recovering from all types of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the trauma is mental, but a lot of it's also physical, you know? And so in your case, I was, I was just thinking it's what you just said, but I'm summarizing was not only was it physical and life altering, it was also mental. And you had to get to a point where you were able to separate and to say, I've, not going to, my life is not a tragedy. That was a traumatic incident, but I'm going to continue on here and make my life what I can do with my life mm-hmm. as the best I right. can. I, I, I want to talk about a few positive things here because we've got sure. a little bit of time left uh, um, before the interview is over, but I, I don't want to spoil the whole book, which is why I've not brought up <laughs> every chapter because I want people to buy the book and read it. It's, Thank you. Um, I was curious, are you going to make, is this going to be an audio book too, or is it, is it just uh, paper and ebook right now? Yes. I'm, I'm working on, I'm getting a managed audio book as well. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've loved audio books for actually as long as I've lived with quadriplegia. Yeah. That's kind of one aspect of technology that has been so effective for me since I was a kid. I remember listening to, literally to my textbooks on audio cassette, which like, my gosh, <laughs> that doesn't put you to sleep. I don't know what does, but right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so I've listened to audiobooks for years. So I'm, I'm tr- tremendously so the beneficiary of, um, you know, that technology. So I want to give back to that. And then also I want it to be as accessible to as, as broad an audience as I possibly can. So working on getting that done. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. I'm excited about that because I love audiobooks as well, mm-hmm. just for many other reasons, because, um, you know, my personal, personal reasons, but I love both. But, sure. um, <laughs> so I, I wanted to talk about this, uh, maybe, I don't know. I feel like you talk a ton about hope and mm-hmm. and things you've been pushing for and and you've been involved in quite a lot of amazing projects <laughs> and undertakings. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I, I loved your speech that you made on your 40th birthday. Thank and you. I, I was wondering if I could read the end of it. Sure, absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. So, so I don't want there's a lot of personal details in here, but I, I guess I was just going to talk about how what you said to your friends. Because this is what you said to your friends at the end. This is a long, this is several pages just for the listeners. And this is not the whole speech, it's just the last it's copied verbatim. Actually, or, I just literally took the text that I had oh, really? stuck it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So you can read the whole speech when you buy the book, but let's just go with this. At the end, it says, if you know anything else about me. You also know I love science and in many ways, because you were just been talking about how you had been so happy that they'd all been there for you and you've been there with for them and your life wouldn't be complete without them. But I don't want to summarize all that. But if you know anything else about me, you also know that I love science and in many ways dedicate my life to it. Science is rational. Science explains the seemingly inexplicable, inexplic- inexplicable. <laughs> I <could say> that. <laughs> science explains the seemingly inexplicable. Science can measure the seemingly immeasurable. But one thing that science has not been able to rationalize, explain, or measure is love. Thank you all for teaching me what science cannot, that the finite space in my heart can hold an infinite amount of love. And I just think that's so inspirational coming from a person who is a science teacher and, 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 uh, you know, and is, is in love with science to talk about love. And I, and you do talk about love in various parts of the book, but I, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about what your friends and love and all of these things mean to you. Oh my goodness, thank you. So, if I, if I love to talk about anything, it's it's 
I love to talk about my, my, my friends. Um, so, uh, my goodness, <laughs> it's interesting. This, um, so I, I, as you know, <laughs> I love my birthday. Um, this uh, this past year, um, I so my birthday is in October, October twentieth. Uh, this past year, I, I, I had planned a little birthday get together. It was going to be the first time since the pandemic, um, but I wasn't able to do it. So I, re- I rescheduled it for my half birthday, which um, is actually tomorrow. So it's oh. going to be yeah, well yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Nice. I'm going to do it this weekend. So the 20, April 22nd. And I have, you know, my friends coming and I have the theme of my birthday. You always do a theme to my birthday because it happens around Halloween. Um, I wanted this year to be superheroes. And I told them um, that I wanted to be that because they are the superheroes in my life. They're the ones who bring me forward and carry me through my times of, of struggle. Okay. Every year, day in and day out, they are my heroes. Yeah, anytime I give a speech and I'm asked who my heroes are, I say without any moment's hesitation that it's my friends, that they are the people who I um, ascribe to be, who I um, would love to be. Yeah, they're the, the people who give me hope and give me inspiration on a daily basis. So I, I have nothing but infinite love for my friends. Um, I remember after my accident being afraid that I would not be able to have friends. Um, again, kind of falling into that mindset, you know, the disabled person mindset that it's not somebody that anybody would want to have in their lives, that I didn't have anything to add to anybody else's life, and anybody who would be friends with me would just be doing it out of pity or out of charity. And that, I think, was an unfair uh, assumption for me to make for myself and really an unfair for me to, assumption for me to make for you know, to, to other people as well, right? Kind of giving them the... You know, the, you know, the, the minimal amount of of credibility or respect or credit in any way um no so my friends mean absolutely everything to me so many of the ones who i was paying tribute to for my 40th birthday are also going to be here at my house again we're going to do the superhero theme and yeah we're gonna uh just see each other and i haven't seen many of them since the since before the pandemic and they've given me inspiration on a daily basis they they remind me of um what it means to have fun and to uh you know like they are the the most obvious manifestation of love in my life and uh, i know that i would not be who i am today were it not for their presence in my life and the person they have um you know forced me to become right the, the person who they have told me i can be and allowed me to be uh, you know as silly and as um as irreverent as i can sometimes be um you know they give they give my life all the riches and all the color that i could uh possibly ask for and i feel nothing but tremendous gratitude for everything that they that they uh do in my life and you know the, the role that they play in my life and um I planned when I see them to share that little book, bit a bit about uh, from the book in um, in a speech, like I love to give speeches to. <laughs> so that's what I did at my 40th birthday party. I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, this next little get together, I'm going to share this that part of the um, the I love chapter here, where I talk about my friends and how much I love them and what they mean to me, and yeah, how I would not be who I am were it not for them. And I tell them that all the time. Uh, I am not hesitant at all to tell them uh, how much I love them and why it's important to let them know that. 
I, I'm very, uh, I'm very happy that uh, you're getting to celebrate your half birthday this week, and that's wonderful. <laughs> that's wonderful, and uh, and all your friends, and and it's true. I mean, you know that you went through all those thoughts about who, you know, who would want to be a friend, and and I, I just think like you know you talk about being sensitive in the book or people labeling you that way, and I think you know everyone has value, and the fact that you know when you're I get it when you're younger, when you, when you had the trauma, it's like, who, you know, who wants to be friends or like, how is this going to work dynamically? And it, it is working and, and, and you are connected to so many people and I think help people, you know, and that's, Thank and I you. think that's a huge word, you know, uh, that I, fe- I felt throughout the book. You didn't, I don't think you really said that, but I was interpreting it as a therapist thinking how you've helped people, but you may not even realize you're helping them, you know, just even the lecturing and the, and the teaching. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I I I forget, I know it, but I forget it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Cause I don't think you, I I was trying to read, I need to read through it, but I I don't remember you saying like, Oh, I help people. Like, I don't see that in here, but I, I I feel like you are, it was just evident, you know, maybe you weren't giving yourself credit. Um, Thank you. I guess I thought yeah, I, I do. I guess these few as a bit presumptuous. Like, are people looking for my help? Would I be presumptuous to say that? But you know, I know that I that my life has um, a level of humanity and depth, and you know, obvious sorrow and tragedy built into it that people can resonate with, and you know draw parallels in their own life as a result of and you know I, I find that you know as painful as those experiences have been I find that to be a, a, a blessing really you know to be able to interact with and connect with people on such a deep level right on, on the kinds of things that that people sometimes feel shameful about or feel like um make their lives um more difficult have been these these instances of tremendous beauty and um you know just, just a great hope and and brilliance for me and i think ultimately for them as well like that's a tremendous gift that i never would have anticipated for my life that is great and i, I and i think that as uh I'm, I'm glad you we've talked about this in the podcast because i really want people out there who have gone through trauma to be able to hear you as an example of somebody who really invests themselves in their friendship and goes deep. And I think when you've gone through something so difficult and life-threatening, I think it opens you up to the abilities to go deeper faster. Mm-hmm. That's just a oh theory I have. Yeah, I mean, not like everybody friend, has it, but go ahead. What's my that? Friend, no, you're exa- my, my, my friendships are intense. Like for yes. sure. Like my friends are like, they mean everything to me. And I think that the, the, the reverse is the case. Like there's not somebody like you either. There's not somebody who I'm just like kind of friends with, right? Like people who I'm friends with, I'm, I'm like, they're the backbone of who I am. And, you know, uh, yeah. So I think like some of the romantic love that people often assume will play that role in their lives, the kind of that foundational backbone kind of relationship in their lives, um, the things that they need in order to get from one part of their lives to another, like that has been borne out on the uh, the shoulders and through the love of my friends. And like, I think that we don't, we as a society don't value that nearly often enough that there are, there are many ways to 
craft relationship so that you know we um, live in a in a well supported kind of well adapted way and that's been how I've lived my life and I, I couldn't imagine living my life in you know without their presence in my life. Yes, that is incredible, and I I want to make sure. We're almost out of time. I want to make sure we wrap, but I I feel like I wanted to make a point here because earlier what you saying all this and 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 from a mental health clinician standpoint, friends and and supportive family, I'll put that out. Right. Family, yeah. Supportive <laughs> family are so helpful for mental health that people don't even realize it's the water they're swimming in. But you do realize it because mm-hmm. of I think you've been through so much and and you and you've you've had these rich, deep relationships, and that is something that Anytime I meet somebody with a mental health issue, almost always they have had a problem with their friends or family, or they've been isolated from their friends or family, or they've had diminished contact with people that they feel are good friends or, or like, I'll qualify that again, supportive friends or supportive family. They didn't feel that. And thus their mental health deteriorated. Mm-hmm. And, I could and so, say, yeah, I mean, during the pandemic, that was extremely detrimental to me, extremely um, impactful. And it had a, 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 um, a visceral effect on me when I wasn't able to see my friends, right? Because like that's such an important presence in my life. Yes. And I was thinking about how you said earlier, how you, you know, are able to live with you know, help, but you're able to, you have your own place. You have like your, the one house you're in and then you have the other condo or Mm -hmm. house or something, uh, on, on Long Island. And then I was just thinking about how, um, you were talking about a lot of people with disabilities are like put in these medical institutions or like half kind of Mm -hmm. unskilled, skilled care facilities that are not very good for them. And I thought about that because like, then it's like, you don't have that I mean, you have people around you, but you don't have your community. And I think that is detrimental to their care. Right. Their exactly. Well-being. Yeah. I mean, there's been um, probably what's more widely publicized or talked about is like this aging in place movement. Right. So people, as they age, you want them to be able to live with the community. The very same idea and the very same need is in place for people with disabilities. Right. Like, how do we build a world so that people with disabilities um, can live amongst their friends, among their family, right? So they don't have to rely on family members who may or may not exist or who um, may or may not have the ability to leave their jobs in order to care for them, right? Like, how do we build a world so that people with disabilities can be as fully a part of the community as everybody else, fully participatory, able to offer their um, their insights and their talents and their, um, you know, the, uh, the skills that they have um, so they can, you know, just be an obvious presence in the world. And this is going to require policy change on so many different levels, whether it's from, um, you know, a, a healthcare standpoint, right, a, a, the increased uh, number of healthcare providers that we need in order to make this a possibility, um, getting more people with disabilities employed so they have the income that they need um, so they can live at home or pay people on their own to, to provide care for them, um, building more homes that are accessible to people, right? All of these different kinds of um, 
sociocultural factors need to be taken into account. So we can do that very thing so that people with disabilities can be a part of their community, can can gain from those around them, and then in turn, people around them can gain from them. Right? There's all this this really circular relationship that needs to be understood and then ultimately acted upon so that everybody is better off. And it's, it's something that can be done, right? It's not difficult, right? We're landing, you know, rovers on the moon, right? We're, we're splitting atoms and doing all sorts of things that are way more difficult than you're just creating a world that, that thinks about disability for more than just a fraction of a second. And we don't think about people with disabilities for more than that amount of time because of those, these things that we've talked about, right? This, this um, uncertainty, this fear, this uh, you know, unwillingness to um, want to uh, uh, talk to a person who may remind us of our own vulnerability, right? All of these things are just our, our, our understanding of people with disabilities as being less worthy than other people. And so we legislate accordingly, right? All of these things have created a world that I think does everybody a disservice and is something that we can easily deconstruct and reconstruct. We just took the time to do it. I agree. So uh, that that kind of brings us to kind of like where can listeners get involved? Kind of like mm-hmm. a send off, like if listeners, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk, your book and your website and everything is going to be in the show notes. So we're going to talk about that too. But how can Thank people you. get in? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How can people get involved with, you know, helping, you know, disability on a policy level or even like on a city level uh, mm-hmm. or, or a national level? What are some organizations you recommend that we get involved with? Right. right. So there are many different kind of disability specific um organizations, whether that is something like United Spinal, right, that, that caters to the needs of people with spinal cord injuries, or ones that are on, that are similarly structured around autism or um, blindness or deafness, right, there are many of those. It doesn't take much effort to just find you know, ones that are local to you, to you or ones that are on a national scale. But then also, right, I think we, we typically look at disability based on like the actual disability itself, right, the actual condition, right, so kind of almost like a medical way of looking disability rather than the kinds of socio-political and justice-based challenges that disability creates, right? So like looking at it from the other vantage point, right? So what are the what are the challenges that disability um, um, is potentially creating for somebody that we could address, right? Like whether it's an access issue, whether it's an economic justice related issue, right? So people can get involved based on an, a particular disability or on an access or justice related issue, right? So like people work in work in workplaces, right? We should not stand for a level of inaccessibility or or lack of representation of people with disabilities in our workplace, right? We can talk about those things as well, right? You can be activist on those kinds of fronts as well, not necessarily tying yourself to a specific cause or a specific disability, but like we we as um, people without disabilities care equally as much about making sure that our workplaces and our schools and our uh, parks and you know, open land are accessible to people with disabilities, just like they're accessible to everybody else. We want to make sure that you know our jobs are accessible. We want to make sure that um, our media representation of disability is what it ought to be, right? Not just the simplistic um, 
you know, stereotyped vision, but actually you have people who are just going about their lives. You're represented you know, as 15% of the characters on, on in, in movies and on television shows, just as they are, you know, in the world. And all of these things I think are really important. You know, as are befriending somebody with a disability, right? Welcoming them into your own circle and you're not feeling like your circle is going to be weakened, but instead strengthened by their presence in it, right? I think all of these things operate on various fronts and you're talking to your legislators and like making sure that uh, policies that we enact are actually inclusive of people with disabilities. I think we tend to understand disability policy as almost a standalone issue which has, I think, unfortunately been looked at as almost reactionary or um, an afterthought, right? We construct these policies that affect everybody else, and then are we going to do this other kind of side act for people with disabilities rather than thinking about, like, policy across, that's fully inclusive that involves people with disabilities right from the get-go, whether it's yeah, we, we enact you know, the infrastructure bill and the kinds of transportation changes that we're going to make so that um, the world is going to operate better, right? Like, how do we include people with disabilities from the get-go into this conversation? Same thing with um, you know, health policy or with employment policy or education policies. Like, where do we start right from the get-go so that everybody is included rather than thought of as, as uh, you know, an afterthought that we can or cannot choose to think about? Like, all of these things, I think, are, they, they can't be shouldered completely alone by people with disabilities on their own, right? It's going to require some allyship and it's going to require some voicing of concerns and your desires of inclusion among people who don't live with disability, at least not on a visible basis. So these are the real proactive ways that, that are going to make a difference and make sure that um, you know, people with disabilities are, you know, are a part of society in the way that they should be. Well, I think that's a great summary. So I think uh, whatever your passion is, as the listeners are out there, and any sort of any specific disability or just getting involved in local, uh, even just like building and technology uh, help or or joining on the federal level and lobbying mm-hmm. that we don't just have tertiary bills, but we have this included in all the language, along with all the other, uh, you know, in diversity and inclusion uh, elements. Mm-hmm. Um, that we are, a lot of people are pushing, uh, that we should be including everybody in that. So I think that's a good start. Um, and I am going to encourage people to check out all of your stuff that you've got to offer, including your book. Absolutely. The movie that you worked on with Christopher Reeve and, uh, your first book as well. I mean, why not? But we'll start with this one. We'll start with the current one, Look Both Ways, uh, by Dr. Brooke Ellison. And is there any sort of send-off message you wanted to say, or have we covered everything? Oh, gosh. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. all, all of you who are listening and taking the time to get to, to this point. And I hope that you have found something that resonates with you in this conversation today. And that disability really is a part of all of our lives, right? It's not something that we have the liberty to just think about or choose not to think about. It's a part of humanity and it's a part, it is equally a social issue as it is a physical issue. And, um, you know, the fact that you have taken the time to listen, it makes me, uh, vastly encouraged about how change can happen and to never underestimate the role that you play individually in how change actually ultimately happens. So thank you. Thank you, Paul, for um, this time today. 
Absolutely. And thank you, Brooke. You won't find it by yourself. You're gonna need some help and you And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website, sharing the website with your network of people, donating to the cause if you like, and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a therapist looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person, and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal, so register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local therapy organizations such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues. It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. 
And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week.